Hey everyone, you're listening to Something Real, and today's sermon podcast is going to be a little bit different. We had kind of a special message this past week at Real Life, so we decided to go back into the vault all the way back to 2016, remember that? And this is actually the first sermon from 2016 called Winning the New Year. Uh, It's about meaningful change from intentional action, so it's really something that we can listen to anytime, all year long, and, and always a good message to keep reminding ourselves of. So without further ado, here's our throwback episode. One of my sons, uh, I think it's been passed on, but one of my sons has a t-shirt that says New Mexico. Not much different than the old one. Sometimes we feel that way about the new year, don't we? we? We get our hopes up, we get excited, we have all these celebrations, and a lot of times, maybe more so as we get older, we feel like, okay, that's great. Yeah, new year, new me, yay, great. Uh, heard it so many times, said it so many times, seen so many memes on Facebook and Twitter. New year, new me, you know, start over again. We make all the resolutions, and yet we find that they continue to be broken. How many of you made New Year's resolutions this year? Anybody? Hmm, you know, I think 30 years ago, most of our hands would have gone up. Fewer and fewer people are making resolutions. We're seeing that, that a lot of folks kind of give up on the concept. And that's sort of sad. The struggle, I think, tends to be that we don't really understand what the word resolution means. And so we think a lot of times that by just making a statement we're making a change, that we can just wish our way into some new kind of life. Time magazine ran a thing with the top 10 uh, most common resolutions for, uh, for 2015. I haven't, so they probably did one for 16 too, but I didn't see that. And they're typical. They're exactly what you would expect. Lose weight and get fit. Quit smoking. Uh, Live life to the fullest, drink less, make more money, save more money. Anybody remember any of those? That sound familiar? Anybody made those resolutions before? How you doing? <laughs> How many of you have resolved like 15 New Year's in a row to quit smoking and still 16 years you were still trying to do it? Anybody? Does that sound familiar? I'm going to get along better with my parents, slash kids, slash spouse, slash boss. Anybody make that resolution? And then get in a fight the next day? We make resolutions all the time, and partly because we don't actually make resolutions. We make wish lists. This is what I'd like to do. You know, there's uh, an old saying that a, (laughs) a goal is a dream with a deadline. If you don't have measurable standards as to whether or not you're going to achieve it, how you're going to achieve it, when you're going to achieve it, it's nothing more than a dream or a wish. And there's a place for those. But they don't actually do that much. I've been to a lot of uh, sporting events, coached and played in a lot of sporting events. Raise your hand if you've been an athlete or a coach or been to sporting events. Anybody? Okay, in this church that's probably most everybody. How many of you have ever seen or heard a pep talk that goes like this? All right, team. I know last week we said we were going to win, and we didn't do it. And this week, we're going to say we're going to win, and we're not going to do it. And and we're going to go out there, and my expectation is that you're going to give it everything you've got for the first quarter, and then let it go after that. And we're just going to lay down, 
and do our very, very best to be exactly the same as we were last time. But we do that in life a lot of times. We do that in our walk with Christ a lot of times. We know that there's something better and we want something better and we can't figure out why we continue to spin our wheels in the mud of our lives and not get forward. We just can't seem to gain any traction. Well, today, let's try to put it in four-wheel drive and see if we can't get out of the mud. Because, you know, I've had a real struggle with the bowl games this year. Michigan's my only team that won, I think. Everybody else that I was picking just really tanked. I, you know, man, Michigan State let me down. Notre Dame let me down. I'm just, I'm hurting right now. So I got to win. I hate losing. Anybody else want to win? I want to win the new year. I want to win 2016. I want to not do the same things over and over again. Can you feel me? Let's get better. Well, here's the deal. If we're going to make resolutions, this idea of resolve is a firm decision. It's a, a standing as Chuck Swindoll would say, like a steer in a blizzard. It doesn't matter what's coming. I will not fail. Failure is not an option. How many of you know failure is always an option? It just doesn't go well when you fail. When you're hanging on to a rope over a canyon and there's nothing to save you, in your mind you have to be thinking, letting go of this rope is not an option. And yet... We know it is. It just ends badly. It's time for us to begin to get the kind of resolve that hangs on to that rope no matter what. So as we go into this new year, we need to understand this core reality. Meaningful change requires intentional action. Meaningful change requires intentional action. So I'm going to do something a little differently than what I would normally do. Normally would give you some points. I'd have them printed for you. I would encourage you perhaps to take some notes. I don't generally uh, direct you to take notes today. I'm going to direct you to take notes. That doesn't happen very often. So knowing that some of you probably don't have anything to write with, I'm going to ask Rachel Lang, who happens to be having her hand on a pen right now, to pass out pens. Just stick your hand up. She'll come around. She's got something. If she runs out, Crunch all you want, we'll make more, as Jay Leno used to say about Doritos. Shows how old I am when I quote commercials from the 80s. Anyway, so meaningful change requires intentional action. And what we have here is seven steps to winning the new year. We want to get into this. This is very, I'm not sure what happened to my numbering. We started when I, does yours say one through seven? Okay, good. Mine says eight through 14, and it made me a little nervous. I don't know what happened. <clears throat> so as we do this, we want, to get it, we want to get a hold of a practical application. How can we actually not talk about it, but very literally be about it? Uh, these seven steps are not, it's not some magical thing that, you know, I opened the Bible and it said seven steps to winning the new year. But as we look at the principles that we can see in life, there's nothing in the world unique about this. You can find any number of self-help books or websites and you'll find some similar concepts. I want you to understand how we connect these with what God has designed for us. God is at the heart of everything that is real. All truth is God's truth. So if it works, it works because God said so. Amen? 
Okay, so that's all we're doing when we get together in church and we read our scriptures and we try to, to learn these things. All we're trying to do, I want to make this as unmystical as possible, as unreligious as I can. All we're trying to do is to get on board with reality. What is already true. The world already works a certain way. We want to get in line with that. So as we do this, we want to make meaningful changes in our lives that require intentional action. First off, you can jot it down in the blanks there, define the win. Define the win. As we, as we get into uh, what it means to win, how do we get to a place that we want to be? We need to discover our purpose. In football, I, and I remind my players of this every year, the goal, the objective, the way that the whole thing works is you advance the football across the goal line and you keep the other guy from doing the same thing. It ain't rocket science, but you got to know that. It's not about how many stats you rack up or how cool your uniforms are or how peppy your cheerleaders are. Nice things, but that's not the win. The win is I get the ball across the goal line more than you do. So for us, we need to understand what our purpose is. Why do we exist? Why are we on the planet? What is it that will actually take us to a winning place in 2016? Turn to Colossians chapter 1 and take a look at three scriptures. They're printed for you there so you get a head start if you want it. <coughs> Colossians is in the middle of the New Testament after Galatians, Ephesians, and Philippians. Paul, as he is writing to, uh, writing to the church at Colossae, as he, he's giving them instructions, he's talking in this particular section about Christ being above all things. And I want us to see, as we're trying to discover our purpose and define the win, I want us to see what he says in verse 16. For by him, Christ he's speaking of, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, Visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by Him and for Him. Okay? So Christ is the end game. Everything created for Him. Does that include you and me? Does it? We're part of everything, right? So yes, of course it does. <clears throat> so we were created by Him and for Him. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Turn uh, back to the left a little bit to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. <clears throat> now when you get there, you'll notice that there are two Corinthian letters. We want the second one. That's why we call it 2 Corinthians. Really clever how they name these. And this is a letter to the church at Corinth. And Paul, in doing the same thing, giving them instructions, in this particular letter, there's a little more uh, response, and uh, he's dealing with the previous rebuke as he's going through this letter, but he's giving them instructions on how to live life. And, uh, man, I would love to read this whole paragraph, but we're going to focus in on... Oops, I turned the page too far. We're going to focus in on verse 18. Okay? It says, We fix our eyes not on what is seen but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. 
as we are discovering our purpose and fixing our eyes, trying to define the win, we want to get focused, right? So what what we want to do is discipline ourselves and get in the right direction. If you're playing baseball and you're at the plate, it's really easy to get distracted by the thoughts in your head, by the people around, by what happened last time, but you have one goal. What's your goal when you're at the plate in baseball? Everybody knows this, right? What is it? Hit the ball. ball. So what do you think you should focus on? Y'all should be coaches. It's brilliant. That's great stuff right there. We need to see the ball. We need to focus, fix our eyes on the ball and forget about everything else. For us to get a win, we need to focus our eyes on what matters, not what doesn't matter. The things that we see around us in this life, in this world, are temporary. So they can't possibly matter as much as the things that are lasting, that are eternal. So we need to fix our eyes on the ball, on the eternal. The things that we can do now that will last forever. Right? If I increase my paycheck, will that last forever? Is it a bad thing? No, increase your paycheck. But it's not going to last. It's temporary. Right? If I have the latest, coolest clothes and the best hairdo, I'm always concerned about that. Is that going to last forever? I can tell you with assurance that hair does not last forever. Right, Mike? We know what we're talking about, right? Okay. Kayla was just looking at a picture of me yesterday with a hair, with hair, right? She says, you had a part. Yeah, now I, got a, now I have a really wide part. My part gets bigger every year. We need to fix our eyes on what will last. What is unseen is temporary. I mean, what is unseen is eternal. What is seen is temporary. Uh, from there, back up a little bit more to the left, to Romans chapter 11. I'm going to focus in on verse 36, Romans 11:36, but I have to back up to 33 because I just can't read this verse by itself. We've got to read the whole thing. As Paul is going through it, and he's laid out the human condition from chapter 1 on, and he's given the explanation of how sinful people can have a relationship with a holy God, how we can be saved, how we can have our lives set right. And in the middle of of explaining to them in in chapters 9, 10, and 11 what God has done and is is doing now, Paul kind of breaks out in worship. Have you ever been in that situation where you're you're just contemplating what God has done and all of a sudden just worship overcomes you? I cannot believe how awesome God is that He got me through this garbage situation. I cannot believe what God did through my darkest times. I cannot believe how I thought God didn't answer my prayer, but if He had answered it my way, it would have been a disaster. And God answered it His way, and I hated it, but now that I know more, I can't even believe what God did. That's where Paul is at the end of this. And he says, starting verse 33, Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable His judgments and His paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been His counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay Him? Here's our focus verse. For from Him 
and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. So if we're going to define the win and understand what it means, what, what's our reason for being? Why are we here? How can we win? How can we have this life be right? It all starts and ends with God's glory. My life to win has to be lived for God's glory. That means I put my desires on the back burner. Not really. I'm going to explain that in just a second. But I stop chasing after skinny rabbits and take the fat rabbits that God's laying in front of me. God is our target. That's our goal line. We want to live for His glory. Now, to do that, we need to prioritize our desires. Okay? Our desires that feed His glory, we need to just... Just feast with those. Fill those up. You've heard me say before, John Piper likes to call that Christian hedonism. Our hearts cry out for God. So our deepest desires, what we're really longing for, <coughs> hedonism in the truest sense, living for pleasure, comes from being in line with what God is, is intending for us. When we discover that purpose and we live for God's glory and we're in intimacy with Him, that's the best feeding of our desires. So we need to prioritize our desires. It's been said that discipline is simply remembering what you want. Or said another way, discipline is choosing what I want most over what I want now. And that's easy for me to picture. There are lots of times, <clears throat> excuse me, when I want something now much more than I, <laughs> than I am thinking about what I want most. When it's five degrees and I'm uh, out splitting wood from my mom's furnace and I, I get about two swats into it, I'm like, ah, oh, no. I want to go in and have hot chocolate. I want to be done with this. That's what I want now. And the, the cry of the now can be strong. But what I really want is for my mom to not freeze to death because then she can't make me the hot chocolate. But uh, what, <laughs> what I really want is a better life. I want to take care of my mother. That's a bigger issue. In football, because, you know, football. Anyway, uh, in, in football, it's really easy in the training to say, I'm tired. I quit. I'm going home. But what I really want is the success, the glory that comes along with it. In any aspect of life, it's the same thing. Okay? I may not want to do the dishes, but eventually I want to eat on those dishes. So I need to keep a bigger picture. I need to take the long view of things, not get caught up in the moment. In the moment, I want my pain to go away. But my pain is what makes me alive. I need to have that pain. I don't need to live in it. I don't need to wallow in it. But I need to not run from it. Because what I want most is bigger than that moment. <clears throat> As we define the wind, it gives us a, a place to... to uh, it gives us a target to aim at. Now, we need to identify the obstacles. And I, I don't have a scripture reference for you here because it's, this is really, uh, I'm building a concept for it. There are going to be things in the way. When the children of Israel left Egypt and they were going to the promised land, there were obstacles. Okay, So, 
Point number one is define the wind. Point number two is identify obstacles. When they were heading to the promised land, they had obstacles that they needed to identify to overcome. There were other nations in their way actually possessing that land, and they had to identify them and eliminate them. They had to remove those things. They had a wilderness between them and the promised land. They had Egyptians chasing them. They had all these things working against them. They had to identify those obstacles. The struggle that kept them in the wilderness for 40 years is they failed to identify the most important obstacle, their own sin. They didn't trust God as much as they trusted their own senses. Does that seem familiar to any of you? It's easy for me to trust my own understanding rather than completely relying on what God said. It's easy for me to see the news and think, oh my goodness, all is lost. When God has said, I got this under control. I will restore all things. The time will come when all will be peace. And my son will reign over all things. So the despairing that comes from my senses is competing with the realities of God. I need to identify those type of obstacles. We're going to get to some specifics about that in a, in a few points here. But the next several kind of run together. They all kind of, kind of build on one another and we can cycle back through them. We start by defining the win. We need to identify obstacles. What is in your way? What is keeping you from living for the glory of God? One of the things that creates anger in our lives is blocked goals. Okay? And, you know, we... I'm going to refrain from using football as an example right here so that my mother-in-law doesn't have an aneurysm. But I'm going to tell you, when there is something in your way, it can really make you angry. Think right now of something that you really want that you can't get and how it might get you really frustrated. And the more you want it, the greater the intensity of that. There are lots of things that can block us from our goals. If my goal is to have a perfect marriage, who can block that goal? Well, my wife can block it pretty well. I could block that goal. If my goal is to have a perfect family, all of my children, my spouse, everybody can block that goal. If my goal is to be happy, come on. We've made that our goal, haven't we? So often that's our goal in America is we want to be happy. We want to be comfortable. But we don't control the stock market. We don't control the person in that car next to us. We don't control that sudden sickness that we can't predict. We don't control all of these things, these factors. But if my goal is to live for God's glory, who can block that goal? Only God and I. There's nobody left to be mad at. There's nobody that's going to take it away. If God and I are on the same page here, and I'm seeking to live for His glory, there's nobody outside of me who can keep me from doing that. If ISIS were to come and to confront me, deny Christ or die, so what? They can't keep me from living for God. Can they kill me? Of course. That's easy. And I win. Because I live for His glory. I have achieved my goal. If I stand and they don't, I win. The only way I fail is if I deny. Nobody can keep me from that goal of living for God's glory. 
<clears throat> so we define the win. We identify obstacles. If we're living for God's glory, we need to look at the things that are in our lives or in our way that we need to deal with. Most of those are internal. We'll see them in a little while. Thirdly, we need to plan the attack. We need to plan the attack. I know what the win is. I know what it's going to be. I'm going to live for God's glory. How am I going to do this? I see the things that are in my way. I will not be stopped. I will run through them. I will run over them. I will run around them. Nothing will stop me from the relentless pursuit of my goal. But how? I have to plan the attack. Turn, if you would, to Proverbs 29, 18. Proverbs is near the middle of your Bible, just, just past the Psalms. If we had more time, we'd go through some Old Testament stories to look at, at uh, the people of God planning their attack. But today I just want us to see conceptually in this the need for it. Proverbs chapter 29, as we are receiving these wise statements about how to live life. We see this. Where there's no revelation, your translation may say, where there's no vision, the people perish. The people cast off restraint. But blessed is he who keeps the law. Now, you may look at that and say, what in the world? Does that have to do with anything? Here's the point. We need to know where we're going to get there. We need to know how to approach it to be able to do it. The king has to cast a vision in order for the people to follow it. You and I, if we're going to win, if we're going to attack this, we need to have a plan of how we're going to attack this. The rest of what we're talking about here today is doing that. We need to put together, for, for you and for me, what, what is my plan? And my plan's different than your plan. Okay, the, the goal is the same, but the platform is different. The journey is different. Your wife isn't my wife. Your husband isn't my... Never mind. That, sometimes it just doesn't work. But your situation is different than mine. So how in your setting can you attack this goal? Can you take on 2016 by force and say, all right, I'm, I am going to no matter what. I'm not going to be the victim anymore. I'm going to adopt a warrior mentality that says, I will charge the hill and I will not be stopped. We have to take it on. When we approach any kind of an endeavor, a business venture, we have to go into it looking at what it's going to cost, figure out if we can afford it. And that's what Jesus said about following him. Count the cost. Otherwise, it's like a man who builds a tower, gets halfway through and realizes, oh man, I didn't raise enough capital to do this. I can't finish the job. If you want to walk with God, understand that this is not a bowl of cherries. It's not supposed to be. It's a narrow road. It's a rocky road. But the destination on the other side of the road is the celestial city. That's the win. Incidentally, if you are ever looking for a book that's not the Bible to read, Pilgrim's Progress is probably my number one book after the Bible. 
fantastic book in understanding our journey by John Bunyan. Get a modernized version so you can understand it. The, the idea of approaching knowing what we're facing is a big deal. When I'm preparing for a football game, I get scout film so I can see what my enemy's doing. Right? If we're going into battle, I want to send every possible intel person I can to find out what I need to know about my enemy. When I was in the Air Force, that was my job. I was a German linguist, and my job was intelligence gathering. So I would listen to the, the enemies. The job went away when they became our allies. It was a weird time. But my job was to listen to the bad guys and see what the bad guys are doing so that we can protect ours and we can get rid of theirs, to, to put it as succinctly as possible. That's the job. So for us, as we plan the attack, we need to know what the enemy is doing. We need to identify the obstacles. There's something in my way. How will I remove that? So to do that, we need our fourth point. We need to recruit help. How many of you recognize that you may not know everything there is to know all by yourself? Okay. We need to recruit help. We need to get others to walk alongside us in this journey. Now this is kind of a struggle for me sometimes because as a, as a red-blooded American grew up a farmer, watched a lot of John Wayne movies. Uh, you know, John Wayne's probably not as good an example as Clint Eastwood. I, I wanted to be the pale rider. I wanted to be the, you know, the, the guy, the lone ranger type. But we're not wired that way. We're not designed to be able to handle everything ourselves. Turn, if you would, <clears throat> excuse me, to Ecclesiastes chapter 4. If you're still in Proverbs, you're going to turn just to the right a little bit. It's right after that. Same guy at a later point in life writing this. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, look at verses 9 and 10. Here's what Solomon the wise tells us. Two are better than one. Because they have a good return for their work. If one falls down, his friend can help him up. But pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. Turn toward the back of your Bible to the book of Hebrews. When you get to Hebrews, find chapter 10. just read in Ecclesiastes that two are better than one because you have someone to help you when things go wrong. The writer of Hebrews says in verses 24 and 25, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching, referring to the day of the Lord when all that we know now comes to an end. It's our job to be together. 
all of us are stronger than any of us. When each of us comes together, then those individual candles make a giant flame. I can come up with all kinds of different cliches and axioms. It all means the same thing. We're better together. We're designed to walk through it together. Sometimes we turn inside ourselves and the devil tells us, hide your pain. Hide your failure. You can do this on your own. You don't need to tell anybody else. Maybe you grew up in a background where you were forced to confess your sins to someone else. And it just bothered you. And so now you don't want to tell anybody your sins. Get over it. We all got sins. All God's children got sins. That's just how it is. And we're called to confess our sins to one another so that we can be healed. So that we can get past it. We're not meant to be alone, to fall and have no one to help us up. So as you're on your journey, as you're pursuing your win, gain teammates. Get people alongside of you. Build a coalition. Gather a unit. People who will work with you, not against you. People who will work with you, not against you. This is why Jesus himself said that you have to hate your family by comparison to your love for Christ. Family is good and we're called to love family. God instituted the family. But by comparison to our devotion to Christ, they're nothing. I adore my wife. She is my own flesh. But if it were a matter of my wife or Christ, sorry honey, see you later. We're done. It's only Christ. We focus on the ball. We focus on the ball. Now, we have to do this with teammates. We get caught up too often in having friends who aren't friends. We have buddies. Somebody I grew up with. Somebody I'm related to. Somebody that I've spent a lot of time with over the years. And they've made me feel better. And they've commiserated with me in my, in my struggles but they're not taking me forward. We need to cut bait. We have to. We have to release anybody who is not on our team. When I go into battle, I go into battle with my unit. Bystanders are not welcome. They're in the way. They become collateral damage. You and I are in a battle. Gather your unit. Move as one. Recruit people around you who will help you in it. And maybe it's not that person who's been your BFF. Maybe it's somebody that you wouldn't necessarily think about hanging out with, but you know you can trust them to help you walk with God, to keep you on track, to pick you up when you fall down, and to spur you on to good deeds. More than that, Learn to be that person for someone else. Learn to be that person who helps someone else up and spurs them on to good deeds. Let's move on. Define the win. Identify obstacles. Excuse me. Plan the attack. Recruit help. Next, we need to acquire the tools. Whatever job I'm taking on, I need to have the right tools to do it. Now, I know that I'm not the only one 
who's been in a situation where I needed a screwdriver and didn't have one, and so I tried to use a car key or a coin or my thumbnail or whatever else I could come up with. I see some smirks on some men's faces, so I know that all you guys are in the same boat. But in table knives, oh man, I've ruined a couple of table knives and I haven't told my wife, sorry, that's my confession right now. <clears throat> These things happen, but the job always goes better when you use the right tools. Gabriel and I were trying to split wood and we had a little camp axe that we were trying to do it with. And it was very, very frustrating. It takes a whole lot of muscle, gets stuck all the time, no good. We got a, a, a wood splitter, a splitting maul, heavier, designed for the job, done. One crack, splits it open. I'm pretending it all went that well. It didn't all go that well. But much, much better because we had the right tool. We had the tool for the job. We had some that we just could not split no matter what. My brother repaired the hydraulic splitter. Ha, ha, ha. That's a win. Now, I can't be defeated because I got the right tool for the job. If we want to win at life, we need to acquire the tools. Turn to Psalm 119. Pretty much right in the middle of your Bible. Psalm 119 is a love song. Maybe not the kind of love song that you're used to or that you would think about. <clears throat> Excuse me. But it's a love song to God about the law. It's David saying, I cannot believe how desperately I am in love with the Word of God. There's a typo in your program. It says uh, Psalm 119.5. We're actually looking at Psalm 119.9. The youth group memorized this a little while ago. Our focus is Psalm 119.9. How can a young man keep his way pure? How can a young person keep his way pure? Side note, it applies to old folks too. Even guys like me. How can a young person keep their way pure? By living according to your word. Let's continue. How can a young person keep their way pure? By living according to their word, to your word. I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. Verse 11, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. So if I want to stay away from sin, this book that you have in your hand is a pretty important tool. It's been said by many preachers over the years that God's word will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from God's word. And many of you can identify with that. When you're not living right, your desire to read God's word kind of goes out the window. And the more that you spend time in God's word, the harder it is for you to maintain that desire for sin. It's really difficult to do both at the same time. If you want to win, one of your key tools is God's word. Turn to Ephesians chapter 6. Paul gives us an arsenal to work with. <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 6 is a great passage to memorize. Some of you have worked on that. Love it. We're going to look at uh, Ephesians 6, 10 through 18. Finally, Paul writes, be strong in the Lord. You know, when he says finally, it's because he's already given them a bunch of advice. He's getting to the end of the letter now. I've said all this stuff. Now, 
Okay, with all that, last thing I want you to know, I want this to, to this taste to linger in your mouth, I want you to know this and cling to it. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Whose mighty power? In God's mighty power. Sometimes we can think as we're working for the wind that, that this is about us. That our tools are our own strength. You don't have enough tools. You're not strong enough. Be strong in the Lord, in His mighty power. But here is what you do to take hold of that. Here are the tools that God is giving you. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Identify the right obstacles. That person is not your enemy. Your boss, your spouse, your kid, that person that's blocking your goal, they're not your enemy. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. It's not what you think it is. It's what's going on behind that. Those folks are pawns. Those criminals are pawns. ISIS are pawns. The battle is in the unseen. We need to get the right tools. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything, to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. Truth buckled around your waist. With the breastplate of righteousness in place. Truth and righteousness are tools for you to gain the win. Righteousness. Being right. Being whole. We might stick in there holiness as we've been going through Leviticus. You could even go far enough to say authenticity, integrity, wholeness. Righteousness is being right with God in truth. And with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace, the gospel itself, the good news of Christ, is your tool for victory. In addition to all of this, take up the shield of faith, our defense. Faith is simply trusting God. Trusting what, the, what you already know. When you have God's word and you're applying it through these tools, you trust that when what I see doesn't seem to match up with what I read in the scriptures, that God remains true. And my senses can be a liar. I need to trust the instruments, not what I see out the windshield. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, of trusting, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Anybody ever feel like the devil's shooting flaming arrows at you? Yes. You, can, you can totally identify with that. You feel like you're under attack. You feel like just the weight of the world is coming down on you. And as Satan is shooting those flaming arrows, it might be arrows of doubt. It may be arrows of guilt and shame because you've blown it too many times and God can't forgive you. These are the arrows that... that Satan is flinging at you. Trusting in God's word is what extinguishes those arrows. 
You're not good enough. And yet God says that you're doing it by His strength and not yours. You, you, you know, you're, you're unrighteous. You're a sinner. And yet God says you're saved by grace, not through works. God can't possibly love you. And yet Scripture says that God sees you through the lens of Christ. And you are in Him, seated in the heavenlies with Christ. That you are co-heirs with Christ. When we trust what the Bible says, as opposed to what our hearts might feel, or our eyes might see, or our corrupted, limited minds might think and understand, then we can extinguish the lies, the flaming arrows of the enemy. And take the helmet of salvation... <laughs> Take the helmet of salvation. How can I not use another football illustration? Good. We need to protect our heads. We need to be saved by Him so that we are not dealt the death blow. And the salvation that, that comes from Christ is not religion. It's not being a church person. It's not being good. That can't save you from the death blow. But we can be saved from the fatal wound through what we celebrated earlier. The blood of Christ on the cross purchasing our salvation. Making us right with God. Giving us life. And the sword of the Spirit, the only offensive weapon on this list, which is the Word of God. He goes on to say in verse 18, And pray in the Spirit in keeping with God's Holy Spirit moving in you. Let the Spirit move through you as you communicate with God. Pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. So prayer is an additional tool. We define the win, identify the obstacles, plan the attack, recruit help, acquire the tools... For some of you, this may be the most important point for you to be able to move on. Eliminate baggage. Turn to Hebrews chapter 12. I sense that some of you are still looking it up, so those of you who have already found Hebrews chapter 12... Maybe you uh, can recall the now classic Heath Ledger filmed A Knight's Tale. Anybody remember A Knight's Tale? And uh, uh, it's a <coughs> film that should have been absolutely horrible and was brilliant. But as he's in his jousting, he's struggling because the armor that he's wearing isn't made for him. And it's too heavy and it's too big and it holds him back. And then as he gets a lighter, smaller, custom-fitted armor... He's no longer encumbered by that extra stuff. And he's able to succeed. If you have seen that, keep that image in mind as we read this next portion. Hebrews 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out before us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. 
Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. This is a sermon unto itself, but when... How many of you guys have, have run? Anybody run races, run a 5K, run a marathon? Not this guy. <laughs> if you've run ever, you know that if you're going to have any kind of success running a 5K, you're not probably going to do it wearing a parka and snow boots. Not going to work well. You want to strip down to the minimum clothing that you need to have to be able to do what you're going to do. Everything else holds you back. How much more so if you're trying to run a 5K and you're carrying a suitcase? you got to put the suitcase down. For some of you, the baggage that you're carrying is a past relationship. And you're carrying that person on your back. Maybe it's your grief, and you're carrying that on your back. And you're trying to run a race, but it's holding you down. It's making you slow, and you're struggling. We need to eliminate the baggage. You can't run when you're holding suitcases. We need to put them down and move forward. First Peter, if you're in Hebrews, you're going to turn to the right. First Peter chapter 2. Peter chapter 2 verse 11 Dear friends I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul For many of us the baggage we need to set down are the sinful desires that we hold on to We're so used to the way we used to live that we continue to live like who we used to be We've been saved we've been made new we've been changed from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light we are no longer objects of God's wrath, but we're His beloved children, and yet we still live according to the flesh, living for what we desire now rather than what we desire most. Put that baggage down. You can't run the race while you're trying to carry along your worldly desires. Dump it. It's not taking you where you want to go. <coughs> You need to get on your journey, and as long as you're tied to that, you can't go there. Put down your sinful <laughs> desires. Turn to 2 Corinthians 10.5. Back to the left again. For some of you, your biggest baggage is the thoughts that are in your head. The devil keeps whispering lies in your ear and you've believed them. You've believed lies about your body image and your self-worth or your intellect or the fact that you can't get free of your past. And he's called you to remind you of your past and, and, and trying to tell you what a worthless wretch you are. Jesus has forgiven you. He's paid the price for you. You've accepted that by faith. And yet, Satan keeps trying to tell you that you're still condemned. That you can't get over this. You can't get past it. You're stuck. 
2 Corinthians 10.5. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Every thought that you have that comes into your mind, you don't control what shows up at your door, but you do control what you let in. When that person knocks on the door of your home, you don't control whether they knock, right? But you do control whether you open the door. You do control whether you invite them in and say, hey, I'll, I'll take your watchtower, let's have a conversation. Or whether you turn them away. When somebody shows up at your door wanting to harm your family, why would you let them in? Keep them outside. That's not hard math, right? But the salesman of thoughts that comes to our, the door of our minds, we're indiscriminate in what we let come in. When the devil shows up at your door like the big bad wolf, and you're willing to just give him your house, well, he's going to blow it down anyway. We need to get the not by the hair of my chinny chin chin thought going, right? There ain't no devil coming into my house. So when he comes to the door of your mind, what should you do? Shut the door. It's not hard. What should you do? What should you do? This is not rocket science, guys. The devil's going to lie to you. It's what he does. And you want to say 15%, you call Geico. It's what you do. The devil's going to lie to you. He's going to tell you you're not good enough. He's going to tell you you're trapped by your addictions. And you can't get past it. And you can't fix it. But we're not doing it according to what the devil tells us because he's a liar. He's a what? Don't let liars into your house. Shut the door. Don't let that happen. Shut the door. Keep out the devil. We take our thoughts captive. And all those thoughts that bring you down, you get to decide whether you will keep them. You don't decide whether they come. You just decide whether you let them in. Excuse me. We define the win. Know what we're going after. Identify the obstacles, the things that are in the way. Plan the attack. What am I going to do today that's going to help me accomplish this? For some of you, that might be, I'm going to set a a personal quiet time with God. Some of you are already doing that. Some of you are not. I'm going to set a time aside when I'm shutting out everything else. That's going to be part of my plan of attack. Maybe you know right now there are relationships you need to cut off. That's my plan of attack. Maybe for you it's just making the decision that I will not miss church because I need to be with God's people. I get strength from it and I'm going to be there. Maybe I don't feel like it today, but I'm going to be there anyway because that's my plan of attack. Plan the attack. Recruit help. Stop trying to do it by yourself. Get people around you who will make you stronger, who will encourage you and will hold you accountable. Not everybody that we need to have around us is going to tell us what we want to hear. Love does not affirm everything you do. Sometimes love has to put its foot down and say, listen, I love you too much to let you go off the path. Surround yourself with teammates who will help you win, not just pat you on the back. We need to acquire the tools. God gives us the tools in Scripture. 
We're going to see that in just a minute when we read another passage. God has given us everything that we need for victory. We have to take hold of those tools and use them. If we eliminate the baggage so that we can run the race, then we're in a position to be able to win. And there's one step left that just seems really obvious. Yet it's the step that most of us will probably leave behind when you go home today. You've written down one through six. You've got all these things and you, you know where you want to go. You've got a plan. You've made resolutions. Maybe you've made a list. So a lot of us are list makers. We don't have a list and check it off. But there's one thing that we tend to forget. Work the plan. Work the plan. This is Nike therapy, folks. Just do it. You know it. You've planned it. You've laid it out. You've got the tools. You've measured. You've cut. Or you haven't cut. You've measured and you've got the tools. But at some point, you've got to actually build the structure. Work the plan. We're going to take a quick tour. I'm going to try to talk less and read more. Philippians 2. start too fast, you can start skipping over and looking up the next passage. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He's not saying to work to gain your salvation, but because you are saved, let it work its way out of you. Act on it. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to His good purpose. You're not doing it on your own. You're letting Him live through you, but it needs to come out in your actions. Turn to James chapter 2. To the right, just past your Hebrews. James is a book of action. Paul writes a lot of his letters focusing on the grace aspect of the gospel. James is putting a, a, a flesh on that, saying, yes, this is true. All of the, the things about grace and faith that we understand are true and right. But if it, all it is is lip service, then it has no effect in your life. James chapter 2, verses 21 and 22. Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together. And his faith was made complete by what he did. Paul had said in Romans 4 that he wasn't considered righteous because of his actions, but because of his faith. He believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. James is saying, yes, but if he had believed and not acted on it, then that would indicate that he really didn't believe in the first place. So the reason that the faith mattered... Wow, Heidi, you really started a coughing section. The reason that the faith mattered is because it led to action. I can sit on my couch and criticize quarterbacks all day long. They're playing. I'm not. The man that counts is the man who's actually in the arena. We need to be in the arena. Not talking about it, but being about it. Back up to James chapter 1. Part of doing it, part of working the plan is choosing to persevere. You will face adversity. Things will go wrong. 
Suck it up and stick to it. Don't vary. Yes, you blew it. You said you were going to quit smoking. You struggled. Okay, that's past. Move on. Don't give up. Never, ever give up. James 1, starting with verse 2. Consider it pure joy, my brothers. Whenever you face trials of many kinds, where it says trials here in my NIV, you could put in tribulation, you could put in struggle, hardship. Stick in a hard word and it probably will apply, even if it's not a direct translation. Consider it pure joy when you face cancer, grief and loss, your own sinfulness, loneliness, Because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. And perseverance must finish its work so that you can be mature and complete, not lacking anything. You can't get to where you're going without perseverance. You have to endure. The word that's translated that here means to bear up under trials. To literally remain under It's going to get hard. To quote Tom Hanks, it's the hard that makes it great. You've got to bear up under it. Embrace it. That's how we work the plan. Let's go back to Mark chapter 6. Mark is an action story of the gospel. Mark chapter 6. This is Jesus and his disciples. and uh, He's done some great things. And the, the crowds have been pressing on him. And he's been preaching. And he's been healing. And he's been ministering. And he's been loving people. And as he's doing this, he's getting tired. Everybody's getting tired. Starting with verse 30. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Then, because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. What they are doing here is trying to get away so that they can, before they go and minister to others, minister to themselves. Jesus himself needed that. A time to step back and sharpen the saw. You can cut and cut and cut and cut and cut with a dull saw, and you're not going to get near as far as what you can do by taking some time to step away from the job and sharpen the saw. Part of working the plan has to be getting yourself ready. You've got to make deposits in the account before you can write checks. Literally and figuratively. These are important things to know. We have to step away so that we can grow. If all I do is try to teach others and I'm not growing, I won't be an effective teacher. If all I'm doing is feeding others and not uh, feeding myself, I won't be able to feed others very long. There's a reason when you're on an airplane, when they tell you about the stuff dropping out of the ceiling and everybody's at that point looking down. Jessica, you ever have anybody pay attention to you during any of those? All right. So nobody pays attention during any of these things. But what they tell you is when your masks drop down... 
you take care of the ones who can't take care of themselves. If you have children with them, you put it on, you, you put it on them. But there's something you have to do first. What is it? Put it on yourself. Because who's going to help them if you're dead? What? <laughs> Only pastors. So, if you don't take care of yourself and you're dead, you can't take care of the kids. You have to sharpen the saw. You have to step back and rest in order to go forward and win. Matthew chapter 6. Uh, never mind, we'll skip that. Let's, let's go to 1 Corinthians 9. And we will uh, skip over that Matthew 6. Matthew 6 is saying we need to seek first his kingdom. Keep our eyes on that. We're going to keep our eyes fixed on that. But the 1 Corinthians 9 passage will tell us what we need to see. First Corinthians 9, verses 24 and 25. I would encourage you to memorize verse 24, commit it to heart. Do you not know? Again, 1 Corinthians 9, 24 and 25. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? This is God telling you the score does matter. Everybody runs. Only one gets the prize. Here's the command in it. The exhortation. Run in such a way as to get the prize. Your job is to win. But not in the way that we account for the flesh. The unseen is eternal. Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last. We do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Work the plan. Focus on the plan. Stay hard after it. Don't just run. Run to win. Last passage. We'll finish with this. 2 Peter chapter 1. The books get real skinny once you get past Hebrews and James. If you went to Revelation, you're too far. First Peter, I'm sorry, Second Peter, chapter one. This is sort of our wrap-up passage. We define the win, identify obstacles, plan the attack, recruit help, acquire the tools, eliminate baggage, and work the plan understand that God is not asking you to make these things. He has already provided for you what you need. 2 Peter 1, starting with verse 3. His divine power, whose power? God's divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of Him, who has called us by His own glory and goodness. Through these, He has given us His very great and precious promises. So that through them, through those promises, those promises are very great and precious. Not just great, they're very great. So that through them, you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. 
For this very reason, make every effort. Stop. God has provided for you everything. You're saved by grace. Christ's death on the cross is what has accomplished that. His spirit in you is what accomplishes righteousness and brings about sanctification. You are acting by His might, His power, but it requires effort on your part. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control perseverance, stick-to-itiveness, and to perseverance godliness and to godliness brotherly kindness or compassion and to brotherly kindness love for if you possess these qualities in increasing measure they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ but if anyone does not have them he's nearsighted and blind and has forgotten that he's been cleansed from his past sins if you want to win Make the effort to add these things to your trusting. It needs to show up in acting, in working the plan, in intentional action. Therefore, my brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never fall. And you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Today, my hope is that you will choose a meaningful change in your life by developing intentional actions. Not just talking, not coming up with a list of resolutions that sound good, but narrowing your focus. I'm not telling you to not lose weight and get fit and quit smoking and save money and all that stuff. What I'm telling you is keep your eye on the ball. Focus on what matters. Develop a practical action plan. And just do it. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father in heaven, we thank you for your grace to us. We thank you for your word and for the arsenal of armor that you've given to us. The weapons of our warfare that are not fleshly. They're not carnal. We're in a battle and we know it. Help us to remember that. Help us to remember that our, our enemy isn't the people around us that we so easily think are blocking our goals. It's the enemy of our souls. And everything that the devil uses to harm us, you use to build us we'll just get on board with your agenda teach us to align ourselves with reality to make our faith more than something we sing about and talk about on Sunday mornings but in every day every moment all in intentional action we pray this in Christ's name Amen let's stand for a closing